0: couple of weeks ago, a couple came up to me and they said, wow, you know, glad that we're moving on as a church. When are we going to start talking about philosophy of ministry? When are we going to talk about vision? When are we going to start talking about new programs and this, that, and the other? And I said, those things will come. Vision will come and philosophy of ministry will come and programming, they will come. But I feel like as a church, we need to talk about the basics. We need to talk about the fundamentals. We need to there's times in the life of a church where it is very appropriate to go back to the beginning and just remember this very simple thing. What does it mean to be the church? The programs will come. The vision will come. The philosophy of ministry will come. The things will come in the future, and they will be great and exciting. But we first have to, as a church, be reminded, what does it mean to be the church? Who are we as a church? And what Does it mean to be the church here in Fort Lauderdale in 2016? And as I said in the opening, that Ephesians can tell tell us and teach us so much that we simply don't have enough time for. But if there's one thing I want us to draw out of Ephesians through the next eight weeks is that we see here an incredible description of who the church is and what it ought to be. You hear many people say from time to time, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I'm all about Christianity, but the whole church thing, I'm over it. I've been burned too many times by the church. been disappointed too many times by the church. And for those people, I want to sympathize and go, you have many reasons, many good reasons to, to say that and to have that feeling. Because there's been plenty of reasons to be burned by the church. There's been plenty of reasons to be disappointed by the church. But what I want us to look at in the book of Ephesians is when you reject the church, are you really rejecting the true church? Are you rejecting the church for what it has been called to be? Are you simply rejecting what our culture has turned the church into, Basically, are you rejecting the subculture of Christianity or the subculture that has been created in the church? Because I think you'll see when we look at the book of Ephesians and why it's so important for Coleridge Presbyterian Church to start here is you'll begin to see this is really what the church should look like. This is how the church lives. This is how the church acts. This is how the church is made up. And it looks a lot different than the picture of the church that we have seen. And so when we look here in Ephesians chapter 1, it is my goal that we begin this journey this morning. It is my goal that for the people that say, I love Christ, but I hate the church, or I love Christianity, but I'm over the church, it is my goal that as we begin this journey this morning is that you would begin to see and go, no, I love the church. I love the church because I now understand who the church is. I now understand how they've been covered in Jesus. I now understand that the church is ultimately a broken group of people that have been covered by the blood of Christ, a broken pack of sinners that have redeemed and been hidden and found in Jesus Christ. And we begin to understand that this is truly the picture of the church and that we begin to long for the church. And to pray for the church and be a part of the church and begin to say, I love Christ and I love the church for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. And we're going to look this morning just at the first 10 verses of chapter 1. And the first thing I want us to look at this morning is who is the church and what is their identity? What is the identity of the church? But because really chapter 1 lays out for us the identity of the church. Who is the church? And chapter 2 through 6 will tell us how the church should live and how the church should act. But chapter 1 is so important because it helps lay the foundation for who the church is. It helps us understand the identity of the church. And the one thing you might have noticed as we were reading Chapter one, verses one through ten, is you might have noticed the repetition, and although Paul doesn't say the same thing, he uses the same concept. And what's that concept that he be, he repeats over and over again? He, in fact, he repeats it six times throughout eight verses. What does he say? In Christ, in Him, in love, over and over again. You see this repetition of in Christ. In him, in love. And so the first thing that we need to understand is that our identity as a church, our identity as Christians, Paul wants us to understand it is first and foremost in Christ, in him, in love. And the reason for this repetition, this six times of repeating the same concept, is for us to understand as a church, you are united to Christ in His death, you are united to Christ in His resurrection, and that is good news. You are in Christ, in Him, in love. And so there's three things that I want us to look at briefly this morning, three things that tell us about our identity as a church In Christ. Three things that tell us about our identity in Christ. The first thing is this. The first thing we have to remember as a church is that we are approved in Christ. What do I mean by that? We see that in verse 3. In verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Blessed us. What does the word blessed mean? In our modern context, we use the word blessed to mean we're doing well, right? How are you doing? I feel very blessed. Or I've been blessed. And typically we use it kind of casually as, I'm doing all right, when I'm probably not doing that well. But here in, in Ephesians and throughout the Bible, the, the idea of being blessed is something way more powerful than, I'm just simply doing well. What Paul is trying to say here is because we are in Christ, we are blessed. What is he trying to say there? The word blessed here and throughout the Bible means to have the favor and approval of God. Think about that. The word blessed throughout the Bible means to have the favor and approval of God. So what Paul is saying here is that in Christ, you have the favor and approval of God. Why is that significant? Especially for Paul. The reason it's significant for Paul, if there was anyone that understood the importance in his cultural situation, in his religious setting, he understood the importance of having the favor and approval of God. Listen what he says. Listen what he says in Philippians. Same author. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. And he begins to list his reasons for why he has favor with God or thought he had favor with God. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Basically said, I did it better than anybody. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, if anybody understood favor with God or striving to gain the favor and approval of God, it was Paul. And what is Paul trying to say here? Ultimately, what he's trying to say here is there are two types of people in the world there is the person that believes that they stand in themselves and on their record, and on their resume, and on their righteousness, to gain favor and approval. And there's the person that says, no, I have to stand in Christ. We either stand in ourselves, or we stand in Christ. Actually, the ancients understood this idea of listing off accomplishments. When a person was in a courtroom 2,000 years ago, in order to gain the favor and the approval of the judge, in order to be acquitted, you would typically read off your list of accomplishments. You would list off your resume, basically like Paul did there in Philippians 3. You, You could tell this man was used to reading off his list of accomplishments, his record. And what Paul wants us to understand, when we stand before the judge, when we stand before before God to earn his favor and approval, there's only one thing that comes out of our mouth. Not my resume, not my record, but the record and the accomplishments of Christ. When we stand before God, the only thing that comes out of our mouth is, I am in Christ. I am in him. I am found in Jesus Christ. It's on His record that we stand. So the first thing we have to understand as a church is that we find our favor and approval in Christ. The second thing that we see here in chapter 1 is not only being in Christ does it mean that we have a favor and approval of God, but in verse 4 and 5, it tells us that we're adopted. Verse 3 tells us we're approved in Christ. 4 and 5, it says that we're adopted in Christ. But what does it say here? It says... We're adopted as what? We're adopted as sons. Now, I've often heard preachers or I've even seen preachers insert sons and daughters. Obviously, Paul meant sons and daughters, right? Because this seems so. I I can't read this in 2016. It seems so sexist. It seems so exclusive. Obviously, Paul meant in Christ were adopted as sons and daughters. Either Paul had a senior moment or he just kind of, he, he must be kind of on a, a different playing field than us all and didn't understand the cultural context that we would be in in 2016. And I think actually both are wrong. I think Paul was very intentional to exclude the word daughter. Now, well, before you throw anything at me, this is why. You see, in the first century... Who had all of the rights and the privileges? The son. Only the son got the inheritance. Only the son had rights. I think Paul wanted to make a statement. You wonder why Paul was executed? For statements like this. I think Paul knew exactly what he was doing. I think Paul was making a statement. And he was saying, when you are adopted in Christ, male or female, you are treated like a son. With all of the rights and with all of the privileges and all of the benefits, and all of the honor. You are treated with all, everything you could ever hope for or imagine. I think actually Paul even went on to say something like this, right? What did he say in Galatians? He says, in Christ there is what? There's not a Jew nor a Gentile. He said, there, in Christ there's not a slave or a free person. And in Christ, there's not a male or a female. He was very intentional to leave out the word daughter. In Christ, it's a new day. Only in Christ can both men and women, can both slave and free person, can both Jew and Gentile, regardless of your background, regardless of what you look like, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've left undone, regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you have, or regardless of what you don't have this morning. In Christ, you are treated like a son with all of the rights and all of the privileges in Jesus Christ. But he says, not only are you adopted as a son, he uses some language in here that might make us a little uncomfortable. He says in verse 4 that he chose us and he predestined us. He chose us and he predestined us. Here Paul is talking about election and predestination, and for some of us we've grown up or maybe we've heard these words and don't really understand what they mean, and that's okay, and we're going to need probably a lot more classes and a lot more time to flesh out these ideas of election and predestination, but a lot of people tend to think the idea of being chosen by God is either a scary thing or it's something that goes a little like this, that God in his infinite wisdom looked down the the, the timeline of history and decided these these people were going to choose me, and these people were going to not choose me, and they're going to be the ones that I choose and elect for salvation. They're going to be the ones that I predestine as sons. But it doesn't say that. What does it say? It says we were chosen in Him, that we were predestined in love as sons adopted as sons. We were chosen in him, that God did not look down the timeline of history and say, oh, that person's going to choose me, then that person is going to be chosen by me, or that person's going to be predestined. No, he looks down, he looks, and from the foundation of the world, he sees who? He sees his son. It says, in his son, you were chosen, not on the basis of whether you would choose him or not, not on the basis of your record, not on the basis of whether you would choose him or reject him, he says in his son you were chosen, on the basis of his record, the ones that I give to my son. Remember Jesus' prayer, all that the father has given me? You see, the idea of being chosen by God and being predestined by God is not a scary thing, it's actually the most beautiful thing in the world. The reality that God, in his love, and his gracious sovereignty, said, I choose you. Not on the basis of whether you choose me or not. Not on the basis of your record. But I choose you because of my son. Based on my son's work, I choose you to be adopted as a son. That's how God sees us. He sees us in Jesus is there any other place in the world? Is there any other place in the world where the fatherless could have a father? Is there any other place in the world where the rejected can be adopted? Is there any other place in the world where those that have no home can find refuge and hope? Only the church, only the church? And finally. We see not only that in Christ do we have the approval of God, not only in Christ are we adopted by God, but lastly, verses 7 through 8, it tells us that we're made righteous by God. What do I mean by that? It says 7 and 8, in Him we have redemption. means we were purchased, the word redemption. We were bought out of slavery, bought out of bondage. How? By the blood of Jesus. And we receive the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he, what, lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight. You see, this idea of the riches of His grace is the idea of His righteousness, His righteous acts, His righteous work. What Paul is saying here is through the blood of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, and through the forgiveness of sins, what happens? Not only are our sins forgiven, but God turns around and does what? He puts on us the riches of His grace. He puts on us His righteousness. So that when God looks down upon you, hear this good news this morning, when God looks down upon you for those that are in Christ this morning, he does not see you, but he sees his son. And he not only does he see his son, he sees the righteous blood of his son. He sees the righteous works of his son. He sees the righteous deeds of his son. Nobody will get into heaven simply by saying that Jesus has forgiven me. It is Jesus has forgiven me and I have received the righteousness of Jesus. It is the righteousness of Jesus that God looks upon us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. We are made righteous in Christ, covered by the blood. He sees Christ's riches lavished, uh, lavished upon you. The question this morning is, do you believe it? Do you believe this is who you are? In Christ you see this is the church and Paul wants us to understand before you understand anything else about the church you first have to be reminded who you are broken and weary people who are covered fully in Christ could you imagine what this church would look like if we actually believe that could you imagine what this church would look like if we actually saw each other for who we were broken people covered in Christ, broken people hidden in Christ, broken people found in Christ. Imagine what that would look like. The same father, the same adoption, covered by the righteousness of Christ. I pray, I pray that that is what marks Coral Ridge. There's a... Um, a pastor who, uh, passed away about 12 years ago. His name was Michael Iaconelli. He was a pastor out in California and started a program called Youth Specialties. And he tells us a phenomenal story about a deacon in his church. And he, he talks about how this deacon didn't really know how to fulfill the role of deacon. He was the, never showed up to the meetings didn't go to the barbecues, didn't, didn't do the things that a deacon was called to do. And the pastor was always scratching his head. How do I get this guy to do something? How do I get him to work? And so one day he said, Hey, the, on Sunday mornings after church, the, the youth group goes over to the local nursing home and they perform a worship service. They need somebody to drive the van. Can you do that? He said, reluctantly, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll go drive the van. And he takes them over, and they go up to the third floor, and they perform the worship service for this nursing home, and and the deacon sits in the back, folding his arms, kind of with that grim look on his face, doesn't want to be there. In the middle of the service, he feels somebody tugging at his arm, it's an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair, and he reaches for his hand, and they sit there for the rest of the hour holding hands, singing hymns together. And the following Sunday, guess what? The deacon comes back, and Sunday after Sunday, the deacon drives the kids, and they go up to the third floor, and they, they, what does the deacon do? He sits in the back, and he holds them, the hand of this man in the wheelchair. One Sunday, he comes in, and the man in the wheelchair's not there, and he panics, and he goes up to one of the nurses. He says, where is he? Where's my friend? And she said, well, he's dying. He's down the hall. You, You need to get, get to him quick. And so this deacon rushes down the hall to the right, and he walks in, and there's tubes and wires all over the place. And he goes up to, the, to his friend, and he holds his hand, and he, he prays with him, probably for the last time. And at the end of the prayer, the man who's dying squeezes his hand to let him know that he hears him and he's comforted by him. And the deacon kisses him on the forehead and walks out. Well, in the hallway, a woman comes up to him and, and says, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you made it. I, I, I'm his daughter, and I just flew into town. And, and he told me that he didn't want to die until he held the hand of Jesus. And she said, and, it, and the deacon confused, said, what do you mean? And she said, well, he told me every Sunday, Jesus would come to his room and hold his hand and sing songs with him. And he wanted to hold the hand of Jesus one more time before he died. That's the church. That's the church. May Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church be marked as people that sound like Jesus, that look like Jesus, that feel like Jesus, that that when they see us, they get a glimpse of Jesus that their hearts and their minds and their eyes are pointed to Jesus in him, in Christ, in his love.